after you place your marker there, take your Bibles out and turn to Exodus chapter 14. <clears throat> Exodus chapter 14, that will be our first reading this morning. Today we're going to be continuing a series of lessons we started several months ago looking at the idea of the first step. As you can probably guess by the fact that we turned to the book of Exodus this morning's lesson is going to be focused around Moses. And our lesson is going to be dealing with Moses at the Red Sea. Very briefly, since it's been a while since uh, I've preached and since we've had a lesson on, on this topic, let's just have a quick review. In our last lesson, we looked at the idea of Abram taking his first steps out of his home country of Ur. And as he took those first steps, we asked ourselves three things. We asked, do you think he may have had some apprehension? Maybe a little bit of hesitation, a little bit of reluctance to leave his home, to leave where he was comfortable. Now understand that he fully obeyed God. I'm not saying that at all. But maybe he felt a little apprehension in leaving his home. We asked if he, maybe there was some anxiety. Maybe he had some anxiety that God told him to get up and go to a place that he was going to show him, a place that he didn't know, a place that he would be a stranger, a pilgrim, a sojourner. And we looked and saw how there were several times in Abraham's life that, that he did show some anxiety. He was afraid that maybe the people in Egypt would kill him because of how beautiful his wife was and they'd want to take her for their own. And then the, again, to uh, Abimelech, the same thing. He was afraid and said, well, surely God is not in this country. And so he was anxious because he didn't know where he was. He was afraid that people would kill him. And so we see several times throughout Abraham's life that he had that anxiety. But even throughout all this, the final question we ask is, do you think that he ever doubted God's promises to him? God had promised, remember the three promises, land, seed, and nation. He would be given a land. He would have a nation that would be greater than the stars of the heaven, the sands on the seashore, and that through his seed, all nations of the earth would be blessed. Abraham never doubted God's promises. Abraham knew that when God said something, God would follow through. And then we looked at that and we saw the parallels between us and God's promises today. We understand, like Galatians 3, 26 through 27, that we can be sons of God through baptism into Christ Jesus. We can be that seed of Abraham. God has promised us things as well. God has promised us salvation if we're obedient. God has promised us that he will never leave us nor forsake us. And so we can, like Abraham, we can rely on God's promises. We can rely on the hope that God has given us. Well, this morning, let's think about the idea of Moses and his first steps at the Red Sea. Here in Exodus chapter 14, if we remember our history here, this is after that last plague, the tenth plague that God sends upon the people of Egypt, the death of the firstborn. And finally, Pharaoh and all the Egyptians, they want the Israelites out of their country. They tell them to go, to leave, and Moses leaves the Israelites out of Egypt. Things seem to be going well. They're leaving Egypt. But in the beginning of chapter 14, we see that Pharaoh has a change of heart. He realizes he doesn't want to give up his slaves so easily, and so he gets all of his army, he gets his chariots, and he starts chasing after the people. And they catch up to him while they're, while they're camped there in front of the Red Sea. And so here in chapter 14, we're going to ask ourselves, like we've done throughout all this series of lessons, three questions. Three things that if we had been in Moses' position, 
If we had been in the situation the Israelites find themselves in, how would we have reacted? What would we feel like in this situation? And we're going to see if, if maybe Moses felt the same way as he stood there at the Red Sea. First question I want to ask you, do you think there may have been a little panic? Do you think Moses might have panicked a little bit as he stood there at the Red Sea? Even if Moses didn't panic, the scriptures don't explicitly tell us that, we know the people did. Here in chapter 14, let's start reading in verse 10. As Pharaoh and his chariots, they draw closer to the Israelites in verse 10. It says, the children of Israel lifted their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians marched after them. So they were very afraid, and the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. Then they said to Moses, because there were no graves in Egypt, had you taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you so dealt with us to bring us up out of Egypt? Is this not the word that we told you in Egypt, saying, let us alone, that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians that they that we should die um, than that we should die in the wilderness. Once again, can you not sense the panic in the Israelites' voices here? Moses, what are you doing? You brought us out here, and now we're just going to die. And I love it how they have a very short-term memory, don't you? Didn't we tell you to leave us alone? No, I believe what they said is they wanted deliverance from the Egyptians. But right now at this moment, all they can see is the Egyptian army coming after them. They see the Red Sea in front of them. And you think about all these little sayings, all these little idioms that we come up with, you know, out of the pan into the fire, or out of the frying pan into the fire, you know, caught between a rock and a hard place. That's their situation now, is it not? They can't go backwards because the Egyptians are coming up behind them. They can't go forward because the Red Sea is blocking their passage, and so they're panicking. Moses, what did you do? Moses, why have you done this? It would have been better if we just died in Egypt. You know, we're going to die in the wilderness now, so you, you see, feel that panic, don't you? You understand what they're going through. They're panicking. They're scared. Now, at first glance, when you look at Moses' response... He seems to be cool and collected, right? He seems like he's got everything under control. Because notice in verse 13, the people are panicking. They're scared. Verse 13, Moses says, do not be afraid. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall see again no more forever. The Lord will fight for you and you shall hold your peace. You know, this is the kind of leader you want, right? Just that calm, that collective. He has a plan, right? He knows that God is going to fight for him. And I believe that Moses knew that. He trusted God. But even in the face of this response to the people, God's response to Moses is kind of interesting in my mind. Because as Moses seems very calm, he seems very, very collected during this time of panic. Look at God's response to Moses. Verse 15. The Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the children of Israel to go forward. This is why I asked the question, do you think that Moses is panicked a little bit? It seems like he's saying the right things, he's doing the right things, but God's response to him, why are you crying out? Why are you crying out to me? Move the people forward. Now, if you're Moses, you're sitting there thinking, oh, Forward is the Red Sea. God, what, what, what do you mean go forward? 
What do you mean? Why are you crying out to me? You know, I think Moses had a little panic as well. So I'm going to show you a couple of instances in Moses' life where he did show panic. One before this instance of the Red Sea, and then one after it. Place a marker here, put a finger here. We'll be flipping back and forth to chapter 14 quite a bit. But go back to chapter 5 now. And I want to show you an instance in Moses' life where I think he absolutely did panic because of what God had told him to do. Here in Exodus chapter 5, you'll remember this is after the burning bush, after God has sent him before Pharaoh. And this is Moses' first encounter with Pharaoh. The first time that Moses tells Pharaoh to let my people go. And in chapter 5, this is where Pharaoh has that response, Who is God that I should obey his voice? And here in chapter 5, because Moses has done this, uh, and the, the, the Egyptians look at that and say, Look, the people are too idle. They just have too much time on their hands, and so instead of giving them the straw to make the brick, they're going to have to cut their own straw now, and they've got to still make the same quota of bricks. Well, that's going to be more difficult, right? It's going to be harder for them. And so drop down to verse 20 here. After the Israelites have been told by the Egyptians that they're going to have to work harder now, that they are not in fact going to get to leave Egypt right now, but now they're going to be even, even worked harder, verse 20. Then as they came out, this is, this is Moses and Aaron, then, or this is the people that have been told they're going to work harder. As they came out from Pharaoh, they met Moses and Aaron who stood there to meet him. And they said to them, let the Lord look on you and judge, because you have made us abhorrent in the sight of Pharaoh and the sight of his servant to put a sword in their hand to kill us. Now here's Moses. He thinks he's going to be leading the people out. He thinks he's going to be, you know, just have that job of go before Pharaoh. Let's get the people out. It's going to be a little bit more difficult than, than Moses probably thought. Now look at verse 22. The people are mad at him. Pharaoh's not going to listen to him. So look at verse 22. Notice Moses' reaction to this, this instance. Moses returned to the Lord and said, Lord, why have you brought trouble on this people? Why is it you have sent me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people. Neither have you delivered your people at all. Once again, do you get a sense of panic maybe in Moses' response? God, what am I going to do? Okay, you sent me to Pharaoh. I did what you told me to do. He's not letting the people go. God, the people are mad at me now. The people aren't listening. The Pharaoh's not listening. What am I supposed to do? Do you not get a little panic here in the sense of Moses? Do you not get that sense of panic of, I don't know what to do now, God? And of course, God tells him in chapter 6, you do exactly what God says. And he tells him that, look, it's going to be difficult. It's not going to be something where it's going to be this easy go before Pharaoh and Pharaoh's going to let the people go immediately. It's going to be a little bit more difficult than that. But don't you sense a little panic in Moses' voice? Let's look at another example. Let's go over a few chapters. Let's go to chapter 17. This is not long after the fact that they crossed the Red Sea. And, of course, the people just complained all the time, right? They complained, they whined. First, they didn't have water, or the water that they did have was bitter. God cleanses the water. Well, now they don't have food in chapter 16, so what does God do? He gives them food. Well, here in chapter 17, once again, the people need water. There's nothing to drink. They have their flocks. They have their, their children. They're thirsty. Notice starting in verse 3. 
They go to Moses and they say, give us water. The people thirsted there for water and the people complained against Moses and said, why is it you have brought us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So they're coming to Moses. They're complaining against him. Look at Moses' response to God in verse five or verse four. So Moses cried out to the Lord saying, what shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. Once again, do you not sense the panic in Moses' cry to God? God, they're about to kill me. You know, they've got rocks. They're, they're ready to start throwing them at me. What am I going to do, God? Do you not get that panic? So even in chapter 14, if it doesn't specifically talk about Moses panicking there at the Red Sea, I think that we see through Moses' life, there were times where he did panic. And there are times, especially with God's response to Moses, uh, maybe he had a little panic here at the Red Sea. God's telling him to move forward. Well, there's a sea in front of us. I can't go back because the Egyptian army's back there. What am I going to do? Do you get the panic? Maybe there in Moses's, uh, in the eyes of Moses. Let me ask you a second thing. Do you think he was maybe confused? Do you think he was confused? As he's standing there, God is telling him to go forward. The Egyptian army is just right there. They're, they're, they're ready to attack. Do you think Moses might have been a little confused as to what was going on? Once again, let's go back to chapter 3 in the book of Exodus. God had told Moses very specifically what his mission was going to be. He told him exactly what he was going to do and what Moses was going to accomplish. Here in chapter 3, starting in verse 7, this is at the burning bush. And in verse 7 it says, Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. So I have come down to deliver them out of the, land, out of the hand of the Egyptians, and to bring them up from that land to a good and large land to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, then the Hittites, and the Amorites, and the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Now therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the, oppressions oppre the Egyptians oppressed them. Come now, therefore, and I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. There are no if, ands, or buts right there, right? Moses, your mission, what you're going to accomplish. This isn't, Moses, you might be able to do this. Moses, you, this could happen. No, Moses, you're going to lead the people out of Egypt. That's your mission. That's what you're going to accomplish. Well, fast forward now. Here's Moses, the Red Sea, the Egyptian army. God, I led them out of Egypt. But you said we're going to a different land. I, I don't get what's going on here, God. Why is, why is there just obstacle after obstacle in front of me? Why is this so difficult? Because you also have to think, keep in mind that God has already done something maybe that we would consider odd in the exodus out of Egypt. Turn back to chapter 13. <clears throat> Whenever you're planning a trip, I don't care where you're going, for me personally, I always want to take the shortest route. 
You know, I want to get there the quickest. I want to get there the easiest. That's the way that I plan a trip. And for most people, that's the way that you're going to take a trip. You know, with GPS nowadays, you type in where you want to go and it gives you a couple of options. Okay, do you want to take an option that's going to take you three hours or do you want to take the option that takes you one hour? Well, that's a no-brainer, right? I want the shortest distance. I want to get there the quickest. Now, I realize that some people like to just meander and drive all over the place. That's not me. I want to get to where I'm going as quickly as I can. Do you realize that leaving Egypt, going up into Canaan, the quickest way would have been to follow the Mediterranean Sea. In fact, that was a well-known trader's route. So that would have been a, a very well-traveled route. It would have been an easier route. And God makes point of this in Exodus chapter 13. Notice in verse 17. It says, And it came to pass when Pharaoh had let the people go, that God did not lead them by the way of the Philistines, although that was near. See, if you look at a map, it would make a whole lot more sense if you'd have taken that route. If you had taken that road, you would have gotten there quicker. You wouldn't have had to cross the Red Sea. You wouldn't have as many obstacles in your way. But that's not the way that God's, God led them. And the reason for that is because God said, lest perhaps when the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. So God led the people around by the way of the wilderness of the Red Sea, and the children of Israel went up in orderly ranks out of the land of Egypt. You know what that verse is telling us there? God took them the long way. God took them a way that was going to be a little bit more difficult. Not a little bit. It was going to be more difficult. There were going to be more obstacles in the way. So once again, as you're standing there at the Red Sea, if you're Moses, are you not thinking, why didn't we go the shorter route? Why didn't we go the easier path where we wouldn't be caught right here at the Red Sea? Once again, do you think there may have been a little confusion as to what the plan is? When you look there at chapter 14 again, you look at verse 15. All Moses can see. He's got the Red Sea in front. He's got the Egyptian army behind. He doesn't know what to do. Would you have been confused? And on top of all that, you've got God telling you, why are you crying out to me? Tell the people to go forward. Um, okay, are we, we going to start swimming? You know, are, are we going to have to swim the Red Sea now? How, how do we go forward here, God? Do you think there may have been a little confusion? I think so. I think there's, there was some panic there. I think there was some confusion. And let me give you one more thing to think about. Do you think that maybe he was a little short-sighted? Now, obviously, I'm not talking about his physical sight. I'm talking about, do you think he was focused on the wrong thing? At this time, Moses can only see problems. He can only see problems. He's got the sea in front of him. He's got the Egyptian army behind him. Let me ask you the question again. Do you think that maybe he's focused on the wrong things? He's focused on the problems, not the one who can solve them. We've already read verse 15, but let's keep reading there, starting at verse 16. After God tells him, tell the children of Israel to go forward, God tells him, lift up your rod, stretch out your hand over the sea, and divide it. 
And the children of Israel shall go on dry ground through the midst of the sea. And I indeed will harden the hearts of the Egyptians, and they shall follow them. So I will gain honor over Pharaoh and over all his army, his chariots, and his horsemen. Then the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord, when I have gained honor for myself over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. God tells him he will deliver them. Do you remember we talked about in Exodus chapter 5 when Moses goes before Pharaoh? Pharaoh's response, who is God that I should obey his voice? God tells him here in verse 18, you're going to know who the Lord is. The Egyptians will know. They wanted to know who God is. They're about to find out. They will know who the Lord is. Now, to Moses' credit, he does cry out to God. Yes, he may not be focused on, truly focused on God, but he does cry out to God. He recognizes that God can save him. You know, it reminds me so much of Peter as he walked out of that boat. He wanted to walk to Jesus. As he begins to sink because he takes his eyes off, who does he cry out to? He cries out to Jesus. Moses does cry out to God because he recognizes God is the only one who can save him at this point. He's still focused on the problems, but he does cry out to God. Now I want to go to the end of the chapter. We know the story. The waters part. The Israelites are able to walk over in dry land. But as soon as the Egyptians try to do the same thing, the mud, the, the wheels of the chariots fall off. The, the Egyptians become just so uh, tied down, they can't cross. And then as soon as all the Israelites are across, the waters collapse and drowns. And they see all the bodies of the Egyptians. A very miraculous thing, right? God delivers his people. Let's go to the end of the chapter. <clears throat> and I'll be honest, when I read verses 30 and 31, I used to think this is such a good thing, right? And don't get me wrong, it is good that the people fear God. But I want to read verses 30 and 31, and I want to point a couple of things out. One, go ahead and read it. So the Lord saved Israel that day out of the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Thus Israel saw the great work which the Lord had done in Egypt, so the people feared the Lord and believed the Lord and his servant Moses. Now, at face value, that sounds like a very good statement, right? The people fear God. The question I want you to think about, shouldn't they have already feared God Shouldn't they have feared God when they saw the plagues in Egypt? Shouldn't they have already understood who God is? Remember, who was this supposed to, supposed to prove who God is? Who was this supposed to prove that to? The Egyptians. But in verse 31 it says, Israel saw it and they believed. Well, maybe they should have already believed. Maybe they should have already feared. Maybe the Israelites, like Moses, maybe they're a little short-sighted as well. And I think history is going to show that. What you, we already talked about, we, have, we don't have any water. Well, God will take care of that. We don't have any food. Well, God will take care of that. Oh, God gives them food. Oh, we're so sick of this worthless bread. Well, God will give them meat. They were short-sighted. They were only focused on the problems that they had. And so I think it's interesting there, verse 31, Israel, they fear God. <laughs> they should have already feared God. 
Oh, they believe God now after they see what God has done here at the Red Sea. Maybe they should have already believed. Because once again, God tells Moses that this particular miracle, it was to prove to the Egyptians who he was. Maybe maybe they were a little short-sighted. Maybe Moses was as well. What lessons can we learn from this? As we think about our life, we understand that we will go through trials and tribulations. We recognize that in our lives we will have problems. God has not promised skies always blue. God hasn't promised that everything's going to be sunshine and rainbows. We recognize that. And the Bible tells us that. Of course, when we think about trials and tribulations, we have to go to James 1. Because James makes it very clear that our lives will have problems. There will be difficulties. In James 1, verse 2, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. We'll go through tribulations. We'll go through, we'll have problems. We'll go through trials. We recognize that. Because I suggest to you this morning that just like the Israelites there at the Red Sea, sometimes we can react the same way. You you think about the world that we're living in today. Do we have problems? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, we do. I'm not even talking about spiritual issues that we can be facing. Let's just talk about physical issues. Are we still in a pandemic? Oh, yeah. (laughs) I can attest to that. You know, we talked about Ukraine. Is that still ongoing? Yes, it is. Do we have brethren all over the world? Not just Zimbabwe, but all over the world. Are, there, are they suffering? Absolutely, they are. You know, do you think our political system has gotten any better? Of course not. We have problems. We have trials. Do we panic? What's our response to that? You know, so many people, they're, just, they're running around like little chickens, and they're just wringing their hands, and they're just, everything is just so awful. What are we going to do? It's the chicken little syndrome, right? The sky is falling. Brethren, as Christians, can I suggest that maybe we just need to take a step back? I appreciate Brother Scott reading this, Psalm chapter 46. I want to read it again. And I want to really emphasize one of the verses. And as we read it, I'll emphasize, and you'll know which verse I'm talking about. But here in chapter 46 of the book of Psalm, verse 1, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, even though the earth be removed, and though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea, though its waters roar and be troubled, though the mountains shake with its swelling. That sounds pretty bad, doesn't it? I mean, that sounds pretty rough, what what, what he's talking about here. Verse 4 There is a river whose streams shall make glad the city of God, the holy place of the tabernacle of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God shall help her just at the break of dawn. The nations raged. The kingdoms were moved. He uttered his voice. The earth melted. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Come, behold the works of the Lord, who made desolations in the earth. He makes war cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariot in the fire. 
Verse 10. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Verse 10. I love verse 10. Think about all the things that this writer is talking about. The mountains are shaking. Every, the, the nations are raging. Everything looks like it's going, going awful. What's God's response to that? Be still. Sometimes I think we just need to be reminded that God is our refuge. God is our protection. He is our strength. And can I suggest to you this morning that if he's not, then yeah, we're going to be panicked. We're going to be panicked. But God tells us, be still and know that I am God. Do we truly trust God the way that we should? Proverbs 3, verses 5 and 6, very familiar verses. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your understanding. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he shall direct your paths. Do we trust God? Even when we're surrounded by problems and issues and trials and tribulations, do we trust God? I'm not suggesting this morning that we'll have a problem as big as the Egyptian army chasing us. That we'll have as big an obstacle as the Red Sea in front of us. But if God can take care of those things for his people, can he not take care of our problems as well? Absolutely. When I was first starting to preach, I had a lesson I was getting together talking about when Jesus calmed the storm. And I was talking about how the the disciples there, and they were struggling and they were scared to death. And remember, they wake up Jesus and say, Master, do you not care that we're perishing? I remember I was talking with Brother Bill Hall about that sermon, and he said, can I give you a point? (laughs) Absolutely. You know, who's going, to re- who's going to reject that, right? And he just told, he looked at me and just said, can I give you a point? He said, here's the point. Jesus stilled the storm that those sailors were facing. He can still the storms in your life as well. <laughs> I used it. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, once again, who's not going to use a, a point from him? But is that not true? God can take care of the problem. God can still the storm. Do we cast all of our cares upon Him? 1 Peter 5 and verse 7, Cast all your care upon Him, for He cares for you. We sing a song. I don't think we've sang it in a very long time. But there's a song, Does Jesus Care? Does Jesus care when our hearts are blue? I'm not going to try to quote it because I can't remember all the lyrics. But the, the gist of the song is, does Jesus care when we're struggling, when we're, when we're blue, when we're down, when we're you know, so anxious and so, so just mind going a thousand miles a minute? Does, does God care about that? Yes, he does. He wants us to cast our cares upon him. But I'm going to tell you right now, And I think this is an area where I need to grow on and I need to really focus for myself. And maybe you do as well. We recognize that God wants us to cast our cares upon him. But we have to believe that he can do something about it. Let's go back to James chapter 1. After James has talked about counting all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, 
Well, here in James chapter 1, James is specifically talking about, if you like, wisdom. But I think this applies to anything that we ask of God. He says in verse 5, If you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. When we go to God in prayer and we cast our cares upon him, do we truly believe that he can fix it? Do we believe that? So I'm going to tell you right now, I think one of the areas that I fall really short in my own life, yeah, I'll go to God in prayer and I'll tell him the things that, I've, that I'm struggling with. But it's almost like it's in my mind, like, well, what are you going to do about it? What can you do about it? That's the wrong attitude. God, I'm giving this to you because I'm struggling with this. Help me. I know that you can take this away. Now, granted, we understand that sometimes the answer is no, just like Paul, right? Three times, take this thorn in the flesh away from me. Jesus says, my grace is sufficient. I get that. But every time that Paul prayed that, don't you know that Paul knew that he could take it away if he wanted to? What's that phrase we often use in our prayers? Not my will, your will be done. Do we believe that God can help us with our problems? We better. We better. Take out your psalm books. Turn to the brother, number that Brother Nick selected. <clears throat> I think that we can all agree that Moses faced some very large obstacles in his life. I mean, we're not, we didn't even talk about the, how whiny the people were, how they were just ready to, to get rid of him at, at any instance when things didn't go their way. He faced a lot of obstacles in his life. But so do we. Remember what Jesus tells us about the way that leads to life? It's narrow, it's difficult. The way that leads to life is narrow, it's difficult, and there are few who find it. Satan does everything he can to distract us. He doesn't want us to focus on God. He wants us to focus on the problems, on the things that take our eyes off of Christ. That's what he wants us to focus on. But never forget what the writer of Hebrews says there in chapter 12. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, I did this when I preached this first time. I'm going, to blame, I'm going to blame the congestion. Hebrews 12. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, <coughs> I almost got through. Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. I love those two verses, but don't forget verse 3. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. Keep your eyes fixed upon Jesus. Keep your focus on him. Because when we do that, we won't be distracted by the problems in our lives. We won't, be, we won't take our, our, our focus off of him. Focus on Christ.
I hope the lesson this morning has been beneficial. I hope it made sense. I warned people and said if I started talking nonsense, someone just tell me to sit down and just read the slides. But hopefully the lesson made sense. Hopefully it gives us some things to think about and to consider whether or not when we think about trials and, and things that we go through in our lives, how do we react to them? God took care of the problems that Moses was facing. God can take care of the problems that you're facing today. God sent His Son to die for us so that we wouldn't face the biggest problem any of us could face. Eternal separation from Him. This morning, if you're here and you've never been buried in the waters of baptism, only baptism puts you into that relationship with Him. For those of us that are Christians, I fully believe that one of the things that God has given us to help us deal with problems is each other. Galatians 6, right? Bear one another's burdens. Brethren, if you're here this morning and you're struggling, we're here for you. We probably don't say it as much as we should. I'll rephrase that. I know we don't. I love you guys. And I hope you love me too. If you see some, if you're struggling with something, let us know. It's not something where we judge, or let me rephrase that, we shouldn't. It's not something where we look down upon someone who is struggling with sin or struggling with anything in their life. We want to help. God has given us one another to help. Let us help. The invitation is open. And if there's anyone subject to the invitation this morning, let us know as we stand and as we sing.